Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, November 4th, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. So we are we are missing uh, Elliot today, so we wish him well, and uh, we'll hope to see him next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about public schools, where creativity, freedom, and critical thinking go to die. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a... Uh, a, uh, yet another depressing topic. However, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, There's plenty to make fun of. <laughs> there is. Um, we, we can make fun of ourselves too. Yeah. And the reason I say that is, I I feel like there are some uplifting uh, ends to this discussion because it can help inspire you to think about ways in which you can educate yourself, and then um, you know potentially. Uh, benefit your children or your future children, uh, you know, or your, your friends, your, your family, people around you. Um, this is a kind of discussion that doesn't really come up very often in uh, day-to-day life. So uh, armed with the uh, data about the public schooling system, I think it can make for some very interesting um, conversations with people. Uh, and I, I, for one, find it uh, incredibly inspiring uh, along with being depressing, if that makes sense. There's kind of a dichotomy there. So are we all hmm. products of the public school system? All of us hosts? Well, well I'm, I'm worried. I'm a product of the private system. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, went to a, I went to a private school, too. I went to a, uh, a Christian school, oh. K-12, through, K through and it was very small. But it was all like formalized were, compulsory schooling, though. It was. Yes. It was the same. Yeah. It was, it was the worse. Same model. I had my 15,000 hours. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a yeah, I was completely public, public, public schooled. Mm-hmm. Private and public. Wow, we got some highfalutin types on the forum here. So I was totally public schooled. in mind. <laughs> what like Doug, how big was your school? Like what was your graduating class? Uh let's see. When I was in high school, graduating class, I don't remember. I think there was about a thousand kids at the school in total. Wow. Maybe maybe a bit less than that. So Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that I think will come into play. Uh uh, but not it's not entirely um determinant of you know the outcome uh like my school we had five i had five kids in my graduating class Hmm. Um, five yeah there was like uh 60 kids in the whole school um wow so what happened with the rest of them (laughs) (laughs) well it was k it was k through 12 so oh wow the whole gamut yeah we were all together um However, uh, my point being, we still had that compulsory model, you know, uh, and mm. perhaps even uh, I, be, I feel like I had a pretty good education because I had good teachers. But at the same time, we used the same curriculum, um, you know, and there was uh, religious education intertwined with it. So take that how you will. I still have an incredibly <laughs> uh, deep, deep-seated guilt complex from all of that. So. 
I was not lucky because uh, private schooling in Costa Rica meant that it was basically the same as in the United States. (laughs) The only good thing, I think, is that I learned English. (laughs) The rest, I'm not sure. Well, why not? (laughs) Well, I'd say the best thing I ever learned in high school was typing. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. It was very practical. I use it every single day. It was the best thing I ever learned. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the amazing things about all of this. You know, when you're reading through, um, you know, a lot of the kind of the complaints about the public school system and how basically what is being churned out of these schools are a bunch of people who really don't know any really basic life skills that would be very handy to have. You know, I, I mean, I guess there's some situations where you can kind of choose to take something practical like typing or, um, you know, even things like home ec or something like that. They might teach you some practical skills. But, you know, like most of these kids coming out of the school, they don't have basic life skills like how to balance a checkbook, mm-hmm. how to budget, how to, like, build a house, clean how to uh, store food, clean a toilet. Yeah, totally. All those kinds of things. Like they just they don't know any of that kind of stuff coming out of there. You know, it's it's like all these more, you know, abstract stuff. You get a tainted view of history. Uh, you get some basic math, and then that's about it. And you're unleashed on the world at that point, or you can go on to learn more useless stuff. Like, it's pretty. It's a, it's a pretty sorry state of affairs, really. Yeah. Well, what makes as well, it sorrier well. is that it takes 13 years to do all that, to learn yeah. nothing. Yeah. I spent 13 yeah. years learning nothing. Yeah. 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 And as we'll as we'll find in our um, discussion, and of course uh, everybody who's listening is welcome to uh, look up uh, the points that we will discuss. Um, the uh, part of the intent, the actual intent, it's not a conspiracy theory uh, of the school system, is to create uh, complacent uh, working units uh, for society to work under the quote unquote managers. Um, you know, that's not necessarily a widely used uh, vocabulary word, but uh, you can, you know, everybody knows what management means, uh, and uh, the the managers of our society are, are educated in a different way, in a different system. Um, they're taught the uh, uh, the active literacies. You know, they're taught how to think uh, critically and how to um, mold and manipulate people who work for them. Uh, and that's how the, uh, w- what we, we have, you know, there's a lot of, especially like in this crazy, uh, election cycle that's going on right now, there's a lot of talk of American democracy and the pride of America and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's not that great. You know, we have a class system. Uh, and if, you know, I, I don't think anybody could dispute that. You might try, but, uh, there is a class system in the United States. It's not egalitarian. Um, there are people who manage and rule other people, uh, and a lot of it, mm. uh, the basis for it comes from this uh, schooling system and how the population is uh, not educated properly. Um, so also, I just wanted to say real quick, like, so our show is the Health and Wellness Show, and we talked a little bit about, like, would this be an appropriate topic for our show? And we ended up saying that it would be because we have talked about mental health in the past. And I think that this plays a lot into that. Um, it plays into your, your overall, um, mental health and ability to deal with 
life. Uh, and so I think it's a really important topic and, um, most especially for parents, um, but not only for parents. This uh, has to do with everybody, everybody who's gone through the schooling system, everybody who knows somebody who's in it, uh, or who has any connection to anybody in that, in that realm. So that's pretty much everybody. I mean, it's just a really, really important topic. Um, I don't know if it'll change. We're not going to say, I think today, whether or not this will ever actually change, but we're going to talk about how you can individually address these concerns. Mm. So, um, if you guys don't mind, let's, let's start off with, uh, so <clears throat> we have some clips for today that are from an inter a very long interview with a man named John Taylor Gatto. And some of our listeners might be familiar with him. He was a teacher in the New York public school system and he left, uh, because he, after teaching there for like 30 years, because he didn't agree with the methods that were, that were being, uh, used, um, so this interview is called The Ultimate History Lesson, and I want to give proper credit to that because we're using clips from this. Uh, it was done by a guy named Richard Grove uh, in his group uh, Tragedy and TragedyandHope.org, uh, I believe is the site. Uh, they did a lot of work on this, and so if you want to see the full set uh, of, uh, of interviews, you can look up uh, John Taylor Gatto, The Ultimate History Lesson on YouTube, and you'll find it. I encourage you to watch the whole thing or listen to it if you get a chance, uh, you know, or break it up and do it over a, a period of time. But uh, this first clip is is Gatto uh, kind of introducing the metaphor of modern schooling and what it means uh, for us. Um, and now he is, uh, he's an old man, and so uh, he speaks uh, – I mean, he's obviously very – uh, intelligent, but sometimes his voice is a little bit hard to understand, so I just want to preface that. So please listen carefully while it's playing. The metaphor schooling clearly tells you what it's expected to deliver. The, we only use the, the expression one other way commonly, and that's for the school of fish, and they are wonderful to watch when one fin moves all of them of thousands of fins move, and they're instantly receptive to what the group wishes. I don't know who gives the original signal, but but education's diametrically opposite to that. I think it starts with the assumption that we get from a fingerprint or from DNA that no two people are alike and that the ultimate uh, realization of yourself is to find that uniqueness where your apparent physical resemblance to everybody else sort of dissolves as an illusion and you stand absolutely alone or you can select when you want to be part of the larger group. Uh, it seems clear to me that the business of schooling has done what Orwell clearly saw you do, or what uh, Walter Lippmann said you do back in the 1920s. You steal the key language of the person you are, the group you want to overthrow, and you redefine it, and people then become confused. It's Newspeak in 1984. 
So the the schooling transformation occurs when they see that the language of education is highly regarded, highly respected, and even in people who don't participate, there's an urge in that direction. So you simply take the concepts and you claim that that's why people are being ritualized. School's intention is to artificially extend childhood, and there really is no practical terminus for that, if they can extend it through graduate school and postgraduate. School removes your volition in all important ways, even who you speak to. Are not the arts of association as valuable or more valuable than anything else you learn when you're young? One of the things, of course, school does is it prevents these kind of connections between different areas from occurring. That's what the short answer test is about. And Oxford and Cambridge got rid of it a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, because they said people who do well on short answer tests they memorize bits of information, but they don't connect the bits of information. And when they seem to be able to connect the bits of information, it's because they've memorized someone else's connections. The better the school, the more sets of connections you memorize. But you can't do that for yourself. Is the school system designed to get kids to grow into a thriving, self-responsible, self-reliant adult? Or is it to whittle away curiosity and to kind of stop them from thinking for themselves? It's certainly not the former in any way for the simple reason that throughout history, management doesn't know how to manage independent units, even partially independent units. Why shouldn't we ask, and any school people uh, watching your, your film should begin immediately to ask politely, why are we doing this? It's a question you never hear because it's heresy. I mean, the beleaguered classroom teacher doesn't know why he or she's doing that. They're told to do it. Maybe they can give a 5% personal spin. That's why they're doing it. Does it make sense for this particular life that's asking you the question? You don't know, and if you started to care, the logic of schooling would uh, dissolve. So I think that's uh, a good kind of overview introduction uh, to the issue. Um, and it, you know, it, it may seem like uh, he's insulting teachers there, but uh, I assure you that he's not. He's a teacher himself. Uh, he says many times throughout all of his different material that, uh, you know, he feels empathy for the teachers who are roped into this system because very often, um, especially in like large metro schools, 
they're just looking for a job, you know, and they might start out with the intent of educating children, but once they get into the system, they have to do things a certain way. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much like every and system, that you know, every profession and every system yeah. pretty much. Yeah, it seems like school teachers are just as much victims as a public school system as the students are. I mean, they are forced to follow certain lesson plans and they can't deviate from it. Like there was in one of the articles that we read in preparation for the show, there was a French school teacher who killed himself. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, was talking about, I forget what he said, but uh, he was saying that uh, the teaching profession is evolving into simply carrying out instructions. And apparently he wasn't the only one. There was another teacher in France that set herself on fire in the schoolyard. I mean, they probably had other things going on just besides that, but working (laughs) as a mindless robot factory professional (laughs) probably didn't help things at all. Well, I think it also happens like you go with with this idea that you're going to make this change and you have all these ideals that you're going to educate children. And I think the average burnout rate in the U.S. is about five years. Mm -hmm. So you get all these young Mm -hmm. teachers that are excited about learning and teaching. And then after five years, it's just droned out of them. (laughs) I even worked with teachers that would secretly teach stuff that they knew they couldn't teach as a, as a way mm. to kind of be rebellious, but then the other and teachers, cope with it. yeah, would, would, uh, push them out. If, if you're making Even, the other yeah. ones look bad by your kids are actually excited to come to school. That's not good for the other teachers. It makes them look bad. Yeah. I think that's something that John Taylor Gatto mentioned. Like he was doing this method where, uh, he was teaching a class and if the child, wanted to question why they were doing that and they didn't agree with his answer, then they could just go off and do something else as long as they didn't make trouble for the rest of the students. But the thing is, is that it made him become really popular amongst the students (laughs) and it drew attention to him. And so eventually, you know, he had to stop. (laughs) (laughs) I was surprised to hear Taylor Gatto say that, yes, he left basically his role as a teacher in the public system because he didn't want to damage kids any longer. You know? Yeah. Well, one of the most poignant stories he tells, I remember is uh, in his first year of teaching and we don't have a, a clip of this one, but he was talking about a, a young uh, African-American kid who uh, Gatta was, was reading uh, some kind of material about like self-determination and the kid fell asleep and he said he went up to him and he was very insulting, you know, and he was like, wake up. And the the kid said, I don't need to know this, you know, and so he, he had this moment of curiosity and said, why? And he said this young kid essentially wrote what is a Ph.D. thesis in just a few minutes. He told him that, you know, I learned in third grade that there are these fates, you know, and, and this stuff called chromosomes and genes that it, it tells you where you're going and you can't change it. Hmm. And that that was burned into that kid's mind. And so for him, he was set and he couldn't change where he was or what he was going to do. Hmm. Well, I think that kind of uh, perspective kind of gets drilled into kids at a very young age. Um, the, like, you, like you were saying at the, in the opening, Jonathan, that, that we do have this kind of stratified society and that's reflected in the public school system you know certain kids 
are put into certain castes, for lack of a better term. Um, and they basically, it, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to actually change your fate in that way. Like you're determined very early on what direction you're going in. And that's the way your schooling is kind of tailored from that point on. And, and you, you're not allowed to kind of think outside that given box. Yeah. For me, it was shocking to, for, to learn first the concept of extended childhood that Taylor Gatto was mentioning. You know, mm. it's, you know, speaks of how programmed I was. And then, you know, after a while, when you realize it's so true that, yeah, like basically they teach you how not to be an adult, be dependent on the system and basically mm-hmm. how to not be an autonomic person. You know, it's totally true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In teacher terminology, yeah. they call it normalizing. So yeah. you start yeah. in preschool with nap time, lunch time, and if the child is having a hard time adjusting to the schedule, they use the termini- terminology, well, we're going to normalize them by the end of two months, and they'll get with the program. Oh, so break- basically, you break the child's spirit. Oh. Yeah. And the, uh, the structured system, uh, you know, with the, the bells uh, and the periods, all of these are very powerful subconscious triggers that get people mm-hmm. into a into a routine uh for obedience um and it's uh you know it was its intent the the Sulskis system as the, the philosophical basis for it as we'll hear more about later was to destroy what the what Fichte called the demon imagination um mm-hmm. you know because it, it makes unruly lower classes who are not uh, easy to manage. Um, and again, I just want to reiterate for anybody, now our listener base is probably on board, but there may be a few people who are skeptical of this. this is not a conspiracy theory. This is actually a system that was devised out of an ideology um, that was based out of Darwin and Calvin and the Anglican Church and a number of other factors, uh, which was set up to um, reinforce class status uh, to school the lower classes and to educate the higher classes, mm. you know, to perpetuate management. And it's, it's the, the, it seems like, like education is kind of a bland topic for most people. They, you know, they're like, yeah, school, but it's so vitally important. The thing that it really gets my goat when talking about it is like, it, you know, the, the old cliche, the tired old phrase that the children are our future uh, is true. You know, <laughs> it's um, the fact that that has been cliched is probably uh, one of the most unfortunate things ever because, you know, where do the people who improve our society come from? You know, they, they come from being educated and cultivated as children so that they're inspired when they come to an early age to actually contribute uh, to humanity. And what you have with artificially extended childhood is uh, is the negation, the destruction of that possibility for a, a huge percentage of the population. And the early segmentation of, of thought. So as you were talking about the bells and whistles, the no sort of interconnectedness between all the information. It's we're going to spend 20 minutes on math. We're going to spend 20 minutes on literature. There's no they don't go together in any sort of cohesive way. Now we're going to do. Well, they don't do PE anymore, but you know what I'm saying? So everything is segmented. So the child just becomes this 
block of all this segmented information and they don't see connections between what they're learning. And I think you um, can, yeah. the alternative school systems that we may have time to get into, uh, like Steiner and Montessori, is all about integrating all of those ideas to basically educate the entire child, not segments of the child. And Erica, you can see like a perfect example of that in medicine, like where everything is divided by systems. And say if you have an eye problem that is a reflection of your liver that, you know, people don't connect the dots because they don't even know how to, you know, you have to see first the specialist of the eye, get a medicine, and maybe see another specialist for the digestive system, get another medicine, and the two of them never come together in anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most normal yeah, people it's all very, before uh, their creativity is just beaten out of them. They want to do everything, not just one little bit of something. And uh, I think John Taylor Gatto in one of his videos said that specialization is dehumanization. dehumanization. Um, and he also mm-hmm. talked about seven deadly lessons that are imparted in the school system. And the first one is what Erica was just talking about is a uh, confusion. There's all this unrelated stuff. Things don't flow together. There's no logical pattern or sequence or no harmony in between things. You just jump from one subject to the another and there's no real logical flow. Um, the second one is class position. Um, students are taught to envy and fear their peers that they think are better than they are and then to have contempt for people who are in the so-called dumb classes. The third one is indifference um, with the bells, like every 40 or 45 minutes or so. Uh, when they go off, it kind of shows that there there's no work that's worth finishing. So it makes the students not care too deeply about one specific subject. And the fourth is emotional dependency. You depend on your teachers to give you smiles or frowns or stickers, or good grades, or privileges if you do well or if you don't do well. Um, The fifth one is intellectual dependency, um, where you basically are waiting for someone to tell you what to do. Like if people did for themselves and they learned like legitimate skills, the whole social service system would collapse. TV would not be so popular. People would do things for themselves. And basically, society just depends on people who are helpless and want somebody to tell them what to do. And school reinforces that. I was surprised to see that even Taylor Gatto, in his book, you know, Underground History of American Education, he described the schooling system as psychopathic programming, you know, psychopathic, you know. So there's just two more. There's provisional self-esteem, like with the report cards and the grades. You never evaluate yourself based on your own values or your family's values. And you're basically dependent on someone else to tell you what your worth is. And the seventh one, which I always felt very strongly, is like you can't hide in school. There's no privacy. We used to have teachers that came into the bathroom with us. And, like, they had this roll of toilet paper, like, right at the front. And I remember one teacher criticized me, like, do you take that much toilet paper at home? And I was thinking, yeah, but I don't have anybody coming into the bathroom with me when I'm at home. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I hear a lot the... uh, the excuse, and I would call it an excuse, of uh, socialization. 
Mm-hmm. The kids need to go to school so that they can be socialized and learn how to, uh, you know, hang out with their peers. So that is, first of all, it's not what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, they learn the the merit uh, class, or well, not even merit. They they learn the uh, you know the the class system of school, where you're a nerd or a jock, you know, or you're uh, one of the dumb kids, or you're one of the smart kids, or like you're cool or you're not cool. Um, all of that is much more reinforced than the actual information that is allegedly supposed to be mm-hmm. being taught to these kids. Um, and it, the socialization aspect is like, you know, less than 5% of the whole picture. You're using that excuse to send your kid to what amounts to 15,000 hours of, of mind mm-hmm. programming um, mm-hmm. so that they can learn how to be like a, a good citizen. And the irony of that too is that the, you know this is not turning out what what should be considered good citizens this is turning out complacent workers for the upper class mm-hmm. people who pr- propel the the wheels of of society you know the cogs in the engine of society um so that they can be easily controlled and one of the things the that gatto talks about and this will come up later is the the active literacies you know the idea that um you can learn to read and understand information, but if you learn how to write and communicate, you are much more dangerous. Yeah. So they want people mm. to know how to read because you got to be able to read your instructions. You got to be able to read mm. what what the what management wants you to do, but you don't. They don't want you to be able to write and communicate because at that point you can disseminate dissident thinking. Hmm. Well, back to a point that Gabby made about like uh, psychopaths. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. If you consider the state of the world and the world is run by psychopaths, like I used to think about this all the time when I was forced to go through school, like the government doesn't really care about me or any of us really, but people always talk about how great it is that we have public schooling and all these children can become educated and blah, blah, blah. Like they don't care about us. So they must be getting something out of forcing all of us to go to school. And what is that? The and workforce. Yeah, it's a workforce. Like yeah. John D. Rockefeller said, he wanted a nation of workers, not thinkers. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's so much negative uh, blowback against homeschoolers. And granted, there are homeschools that don't teach kids for whatever reason. You know, it started as kind of a more of a religious thing because. Uh, Church organizations weren't happy with what was being taught, but a lot of the flack against homeschooling is is just what you're saying, Jonathan. Oh, they're not properly socialized, <laughs> and it's it's like oh, they're not properly brainwashed, or they're not properly indoctrinated, mm-hmm. or um, sociopathic. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Really, I mean, the, the kind of socialization you get in the school, public school system, just take a look at the Stanford prison experiment and you get, you get a pretty good idea of what, uh, what kind of socialization they're learning. Yeah. Yeah. So I Stan- think it's important to, oh, go ahead, please. So the Stanford prison experiment is where they did the experiment where they divided two groups of people up into prisoners and guards and they watched how they actually took on the role of their assignments like mentally and emotionally yeah yeah yeah, 
Yeah, basically became the roles that they had been assigned, despite the fact that going in there, they were exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see the same yep. thing with these kids, you know what I mean? Like like you were uh, saying before, Jonathan, you know, you got the nerds, you got the jocks, you got all this, you know, the, these these roles end up either overtly or, co- or covertly kind of being assigned to these kids. So, uh, you know, a, a kid is either a good student or a bad student. And a good student is basically somebody who can, you know, follow instructions properly and get a good grade. Whereas a, a bad student, you know, it might be a kid who actually has some behavioral problems or some kind of other issues, or it might just be some kid who kind of is like, I don't see the point of this. This is not interesting. So I'm not going to try, which is probably, you know, that's the category I put myself into. <laughs> like through school, I basically got these report cards coming back all the time that said did not live up to potential. And it's like, well, yeah. Whose fault Why would is that? <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's just the other thing too. I mean, they, they basically they're telling the parents this as if it's the, you know if this is this is their fault. You know, you need to do something about your kid because he's not living up to his potential. So it, it's 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 just ridiculous. And you know, yeah. Anyway, I think yeah, he needs so, medication. It's so funny how they blame. Well, the I'm parents. lucky that I avoided that. Yeah. Yeah, they blame the parents, and you're spending eight hours a day with my child. <laughs> Who's the blame? My yeah. kid comes home he has like three hours before he goes to bed, and then he has the weekends, and I have to work, and you're saying he doesn't live up to his potential. I think that John Taylor yeah. Gatto said, like, kids have like nine hours a week in which to develop a sense of their own selfness. Yeah. And the rest yeah. of the time, they're just in yeah. school doing a bunch of busy work. How are they supposed to develop any yeah. potential? Yeah. <laughs> Not only that, but then their time out of school, they're probably spending it on like watching TV or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on the internet or something like that, doing something un- rather unproductive just because, you know, they're probably exhausted from having to conform to this artificial environment for nine, you know, for eight hours a day or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that nine hours a week, I, I'm not surprised they just want to vegetate during that. <laughs> Well, that's like the importance of the the family unit, um, you know, and this can be misinterpreted to be like super ultra conservative. But um, from for my own part, I'm not talking about like homosexual parents versus like heterosexual parents or anything like that. Just a family unit, just a, a unit where the, there is uh, a bonding and education happening in the home. The school system separates the child from that environment at an extremely early age. And like Eric, or like Tiffany, you said that, you know, it gives the majority of time. Uh, it's a huge chunk of time uh, over to this indoctrination system where they are not, uh, you know, at the behest of what would be real education coming from their parents. Now, the, you know, what's the sad part is at this point, too, their parents have gone through that same system and are now part of the, you know, by and large part of the working class. Um, <clears throat> and so they have themselves have not been taught how to, you know, cultivate a, uh, a rich mind. Um, and it just snowballs from there. So I'm making some pretty broad generalizations, but I think it does, in fact, apply to, what, 80% of the population, maybe more? Maybe you know more. where it's just this, just this cycle. Um, and, in some, and in some countries, they want to send children to school like at three years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's these trends where they're starting them earlier with the daycare, and then they want to extend the school day and have all these after-school programs, and then they want to extend the school year and like slowly, slowly whittle away the length of the summer vacation. 
and break apart the family structure. Yeah. Create division and teach children to question, yeah. you know, their parents and, and kind of become the parent, become the authority figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and where would we be with, you know, <clears throat> without this, uh, hypothetically, we'd be in a much better place. We would have more options for uh, for true uh, genius and people who would contribute uh, in a be- beneficial way to society would be realizing their potential at a very early age. Um, but, you know, of course, that's a danger to the, mm-hmm. the psychopathic control system. It's like Gatto said, managers don't know how to manage independent units. Yeah, that kind mm-hmm. of uh, scenario where we didn't have public school is so foreign to my publicly schooled mind. <laughs> I can't imagine, like, the amount of freedom uh, one of the articles that we were reading for the show is talking about how the reason why uh, children don't like schools, and it's because they have no freedom at school. They'd rather be doing something else, and a lot of people don't see it that way. But schools are basically prisons. You have to mm-hmm. go to them. You can be fined. Your parents can be fined or taken to jail if you are truant. Yeah. Yeah, well, they, that, and, you know, I, <clears throat> I hear the devil's uh, advocate argument against that being, well, kids, you know, that freedom is dangerous for them. They can't handle that. They need structure. Mm-hmm. That's the schooling talking. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Well, there's a talking. difference between structure and indoctrination, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, Gatto mm-hmm. talks a lot about how a great way to teach children, especially if you own a family business or just how your household runs, they're going to learn how to have structure in running a household. It doesn't mean it needs to be imposed from some big institution. You know, that, how to that, take responsibility. Exactly, that they are an integral part of this working unit. And they learn yeah. that by modeling, the- by parents modeling that behavior. Yeah, I think I think that sometimes you you that, like you know when you hear that sort of devil's advocate kind of argument, it's it's I, I think that that people think well, if you don't have a, a a rigid kind of school program, then it's going to be the opposite of that, and it's complete. Uh, they they just have complete freedom to do whatever they want to do with no accountability. But I think that there's a lot of middle ground there, and that's what Gatto is arguing in a lot of these cases. You know, he didn't just say, um, "Okay, kids, if you don't think that this is important, then you can leave." You know, he would still, there were, they were still accountable for something. So they could, you know, come up with something or he could come up with something that would, would make them kind of learn more in line with their own interests so that they would actually learn a lot more in that way. So I think that, you know, it's, it's tempting to think that, well, if there wasn't a public school system, it would be chaos. You know, these kids wouldn't learn anything at all. They just sit around on their cell phones all day and there would be nothing. But I think that uh, there are ways of kind of providing accountability and structure um, in a more unique, um, individualized way. Yeah. That was what, there was a great, uh, anecdote that Gatto told about one of his students who was this girl who was kind of flighty and these days would probably be diagnosed ADHD, you know, and, uh, she came from a, from a poor family and, um, she, she had told him like she couldn't concentrate in class. And so he said, what's going on? And she said, 
all she wants with her life is to be an Olympic swimmer. That was her thing. She loved swimming and she wanted to make the Olympics. And he said, okay, well, let's get you out into the city. There are like a hundred odd public swimming pools in, in the city. Um, go around to each one, create a catalog, create an information system uh, of the chemical makeup of the water, the hours of operation, the, the, the width, you know, and depth of the pool, um, the, uh, the social like placement, the neighborhood that it's in, create this database of information about the public swimming uh, areas. So she did that and he would let her out of class to go do this project. Well, at one point, uh, it was like the New Yorker or one of the prominent newspapers in New York approached him and said they wanted to buy this data from this girl because it was very valuable. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was, it was $500 that they were offering. And, uh, so he approached her with that and she said no because they are going to put their name on it. She said, if they want, they can, they can buy it, but they have to put my name on it. And they hmm. did not agree to that. So, so she didn't sell it. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There yeah. you go. Yeah. And that's, that's real education. It's one small example, you know, definitely. Well, uh, since we've got a couple other clips, I wonder if you guys mind if we go to the one about the uh, the Prussian system and the philosophical roots of, of modern schooling. Mm -hmm. This uh, It's a little dry, depending on your taste, but I would really urge everybody to listen carefully to what Gatto says here and uh, maybe even take some notes if you're so inclined. Um, it's really important, and it provides the structure for the basis of modern schooling and where this thinking uh came from and you wrap your head around this point of view uh, it becomes much easier to see the larger picture and like why the system is in place Prussian schooling which had for a different reason had been out to destroy the imagination and let me say to anyone listening to this when someone makes a reckless statement like that you make sure they can document it. And I will document it as long as you're willing to walk to your local public library. Because in every public library worth its salt in the United States and in every college library, you will find a collection of essays by a Prussian philosopher, Johann Fichte, who was the immediate heir to the University of Berlin's philosophy department, which had been under Immanuel Kant. Fichte wrote a series of, it was over a dozen public essays to the Prussian king from, let's say, let me say, 1808 to about 1818. They're called Addresses to the German Nation. And the provocative event that set the first one off was the Prussian army, which was the Prussian economy, renting soldiers, stealing other people's stuff, had been whipped by Napoleon's amateur army at the Battle of Jena in 1806. And Fichte said, 
it was because this demon imagination was loose among ordinary soldiers and in situations they would override the orders from headquarters about what to do and that's why we lost. Now what should fascinate anyone listening is that's exactly what the so-called liberal philosopher uh, Spinoza in Holland had said in 1690 in a book called Tractatus Religico-Politicus. Spinoza said that the ordinary population was so psychologically diseased, murderously so, there was no way to heal it. Just as Ficht, 125 years later, said there was no way to heal the disobedience gene in people who thought for themselves. Fichte said we have to set up a system of forced schooling, universal forced schooling, in which we destroy the imagination. Bells, ordered lessons, constant testing, rankings, Now, if it were only those two major figures, but you now can go back a few hundred years in history to John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is this thick, tiny print. But if you ever go mad and actually force yourself to read it, rather than to read what an encyclopedia tells you it says, you'll find that Calvin says that the saved are saved before they're born. The damned, who are 19 to 1, are damned before they're born, and no amount of good work or behavior can save the damned, and no amount of evil behavior can damn the saved. The expression that used to be pretty common, but has vanished, I think, on purpose, is justified sinners. The saved are justified sinners who can do anything. They can carpet bomb civilian populations, whether they're Nazis or Americans. You know, you've done no harm, according to Calvin. Calvin said the only way the, the elect, he called the saved. The elect will be ever be safe because they're outnumbered so heavily is to set up a system of universal compulsion schooling with the intention of destroying the imagination and filling the head with garbage. Spinoza said the same thing. Fichte said the same thing. Francis Galton a world-famous explorer, mathematician, inventing little statistical formulae to discriminate shades of quality that the schools are infested with. And he has, Mr. Galton, a worldwide following of Galton clubs, including in the United States. He makes several pilgrimages to the U.S., to spread the insight that a menace to the human race exists in 95% of the population. And there has to be a way 
to put them, render them harmless. School, recommended by Fichte, Spinoza, Calvin, and Plato. That's the way to do it. And we'll defend this with precise mathematical signs. We will keep to ourselves the biological reason. Meanwhile, we've got to find a way for the biologically advanced to breed with one another. So this package of high-level evidences, contentions, is capstone with scientific mathematical evidence and the proselytizing of Francis Galton Vigorous, rigorous. Out of that comes in the period right after the American First World War, a phenomenon in country fairs all over America called the Better Families Competitions. You set up the criteria for ranking and, you know, you present your daughters like prize heifers to be rated by the judges. So we have a series of these reinforcements of Darwinian theory, which is really a reinforcement of Anglican theology or Calvinist theology or Platonic philosophy or Fichtean philosophy, or if you want to go liberal, uh, of uh, Spinozan philosophy, until finally we get to this cap. So now the cap is off the tunnel to hell because not only are people justified in setting up a form of schooling that's anti-educational, but they're doing either nature's work or the Lord's work. You decide. Oh, that's that the, uh, really sinister. <laughs> yeah. So basically, yeah. this colon system was set up by schizoid psychopaths. <laughs> in order to mold Pretty our much. minds, in order to fit what they saw fit. Oh, that yeah. is so dirty. <laughs> Destroy the demon imagination. <laughs> oh. Yeah. What really gets me on all this is the, uh, you know, it, like Jonathan, before you were talking about how, you know, the children are the future and that sort of thing. And I, I don't know that necessarily everybody connects to that. I mean, you can kind of intellectually like see that and understand it, but it really makes me mad that, you know, we all are a product of this system. So mm-hmm. I just think about, you know, how something in me, no doubt, has been killed by being put mm-hmm. through this entire system. You know, and whether or not I can actually recover that is like, you know, remains to be seen, I guess. But it just makes me so mad to think about like how much better would I be thinking? How much better would I be able to see the world? How much better would I be able to navigate Mm -hmm. if I hadn't gone through this psychopathic creativity killing system that just basically ground out everything that was in me to begin with? I just get so angry about that. Yeah, that's the, I, I think he found the crux. That's that's yeah. the crux right there. Is what would we be without it? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I have the same feeling of anger. It's probably like around the time when I was thirty-five and I first came upon all the information that's carried on SOT and on our forum, 
And there was like a couple days or maybe a week or so, I was just extraordinarily pissed off that I'd wasted 35 years of my life on nothing. And, you know, I had to make a vow to myself that I would do everything possible in order to dig myself out of that hole. And it hasn't been easy and I'm still digging, but I just could not believe that I spent so much time in my life just on nonsense. It's almost like you have to uneducate yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a popular term that's kind of coming up now is unschooling. Uh, and I yeah. think it's in the mainstream, it's, it's seen alongside uh, anti-vaccination movement or homeschoolers or tinfoil hatters, you know, it's kind of talked down upon. Um, uh, but, you know, if you, were to take the time and delve into this topic, uh, you would see what Doug pointed out, you know, that uh, having gone through the system, uh, we all have a long way to go. And it's not our fault. I think that's a big mm. thing to realize, too. You know, this was done to us and is being done to every child in the public school system right now. And <clears throat> the the state of the world, the reason I think this is such a vitally important issue, and it's not just some sort of like uh, meta level discussion, you know, or like a political policy discussion. It's actually the, the, the basis for kind of where we're at. You know, there's war all over the world. There's psychopaths in places of power and the population is easy to control. And they've been trained that way, you know, <laughs> and uh, if we were able to think properly and have been cultivated to be adults by the time we were, mm-hmm teenagers which is when you're supposed to grow up when you're Mm -hmm. when you're in your mid-teens you know um you're supposed to reach adulthood you know like around that time uh and if you look back in the uh the 1800s and before there were very young people 14 15 who were writing uh treatises who were disseminating information who were trained in active literacies who were extremely intelligent um, and mm-hmm. you just, and now I think we've said this on the show before. Now you see that and it's, it goes viral on YouTube because it's some sort of like freak genius child mm-hmm. when that is what mm-hmm. should be normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now people in their forties, yeah. they cannot even like lead successful lives or, you know, have a healthy family. And I think the schooling yeah. system from the articles that I read for this show, like, yes, maybe our generation, yes, we are. We were taught not to connect the dots, heal our spirit, our curiosity. But it's, it seems like the generation that is now in school, they're being, you know, more programmed to just withstand the police state, you know, with police mm-hmm. controls in, in schools and, you know, getting punished for minor offenses that are like, you know, just normal childhood stuff. You know, it's crazy. Mm, yeah. And medicated. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. And medicated. That's a big part of the picture now. Yeah. I'm actually really, I think I, I, I'm thankful that, um, you know, when I was going through school, this whole medicating kids explosion that has happened, it was, it was before that. So I, you know, there wasn't the option to, you know, this kid isn't performing well enough, so we've got to get him on some kind of medication. You know, it was just kind of like I was able to skate by and just like, you know, stay under the radar. But these days, kids, you know, they, they the, like the first option 
for, for uh, somebody uh, looking at a kid who isn't getting with the program is to medicate them. And that's yeah, just other, terrifying. Otherwise, they will not be admitted to school, which is enforced. And then when they start the medication, it just gets worse and worse. They don't learn to mm-hmm. emotionally regulate. It destroys their brain chemistry. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah, more food for the yeah. moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and what, one thing to go back to the, uh, the, the basis of the, the philosophical basis of this that Gatto was talking about. He mentioned Darwin, the Darwinist ideology. And it's, uh, it's really sad and ironic to me that, uh, the Darwin is one of the most widely taught figures in the public schooling system. Now, the theory of evolution itself may have some legs, no pun intended. Uh, huh. I really didn't intend that, <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> Uh, but Darwin himself was a Hitlerian level racist and eugenicist. Uh, he, the, the original title of the origin of species, which is the book everybody knows. Yeah. Yeah. Darwin origin of species is the origin of species and the progress of the favored races. That's the full title of the original book. Did you learn that in school, Jonathan? Uh, no, I did not. He learned that on his own. <laughs> yeah. And in the book, Darwin, learning? <laughs> <laughs> but in the book, Darwin talks not only about the evolution of species, but the classes of uh, of humanity and the races and how they are separated by their potential. And in his mind, mm-hmm. particularly, he was extremely racist towards uh, any uh, black African people. But in his mind, particularly, the Irish were at the bottom of the totem pole. They were the most dirty, animalistic, <laughs> hopeless race on the planet. Uh, and, uh, he was also an Anglican minister. Um, and so you can see the, the evolution. Oh, and Francis Galton, who Gatto talks about was Darwin's cousin. Mm -hmm. Darwin was, was a member of an extremely fabulously wealthy family. They got their money from, uh, what's called the Wedgwood pottery, if I remember correctly. And it was a, it was a, 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 an industry that, that gave this family their money. So Darwin and Galton were cousins. Uh, Darwin, you know, uses his money to travel the world and to uh, come up with the, this uh, theory of which he used to propagate the idea of separated classes based on potential, uh, extremely <laughs> racist idea. Um, and then Galton uh, tags onto that and says, yeah, yeah, there's a, the great unwashed need to be kept unwashed and in their place. Uh, in order to do that, we will set up a system of forced uh, compulsory schooling to destroy their imagination and make sure that they don't take over our ruling class. It's uh, totally what happened, um, and uh, and nobody knows that. <laughs> I mean, people do, but you know, if if the population at large knew that that was the case, I have to imagine that something would happen. But I don't know. Maybe you know, maybe the brainwashing is so complete that. Uh, like say somehow you were able to get this information out uh, to most people, uh, you've got a, a huge fight ahead of you. I mean, I think at the outset, uh, a majority of people that you explain this situation to are, are very first going to struggle with thinking that you're a conspiracy theorist and that this is all, mm. you know, conjecture. Um, <clears throat> and then at some point there's cognitive dissonance saying, well, this can't be the way, you know, this cannot be the mm. reason for the public schooling system. Uh, and you know, it's, it's very hard to think about. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, 
the Darwinist ideology, the Calvinist ideology. And I, I personally, I grew up in a religious uh, environment and I went actually for uh, a year and a half to a Baptist uh, college. I went to a Christian school when I was younger, but I also went to a Baptist college for a while. And right down the street was a Calvinist college, Calvin University in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, there was a lot of talk there about the, uh, the Calvinist ideology, um, the justified uh, sinners, the idea that the, uh, the elect are uh, saved no matter what they do. Um, hmm. henceforth, henceforth, you have a power class who can do whatever the hell they want with the rest of the planet. Um, as Gatto said, carpet bomb civilizations doesn't matter. You're doing the Lord's work. Unbelievable. Yeah, I think uh, in uh, the, in your your kind of uh, hypothetical scenario, Jonathan, where you would be, you know, actually getting this information out to people. I mean, part of the whole reason for the existence of this um, mandatory uh, brainwashing program is to completely breed out any well, not breed out, but like you know, stamp out any possibility of people even desiring to, um, you know, overthrow a system or. Um, make make any change, you know. It's kind of yeah. like the 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 thinking potential is not there. So it's like I I think it would just go over most people's heads, you know. Maybe that's the cynical perspective, but that's uh, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, it's like it it reminds me of uh, a guy named Lysander Spooner, who's very interesting. I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with him, but he was kind of one of the original anarchists. Anarchy not being a complete state of chaos, uh, but in his mind, anarchy was the actual individual rule of each person over themselves. Um, you hear some talk about the sovereignty movement, and it, it's really unfortunately connected with the radical right. Uh, that kind of pisses me off. But the idea that you could actually rule and govern yourself and work in a cohesive way with other people out of uh, common interest in uh, in humanity to make your society better... Uh, to most people, that's impossible. And you say anarchy, and they're like, oh, "It's chaos," you know. But it, it probably yeah. would be it would be chaos because nobody's trained to actually live that way. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But um, we have been trained and indoctrinated into thinking that we need uh, the ruling class. Um, we need a government. We need somebody to tell us what to do. Uh, authoritarian, uh, yeah, followers, you know. And that's that's what Gatto talks about in this is that there's a learned dependency on the system. Like one of the things that 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 is being taught over and above anything else is that you need the system in order to in order to survive. You know, it's like like Erica was saying before. It's like it's replaced the parental system, so that suddenly this this authority is is uh, com- you're completely dependent upon it. You can't make decisions on your own. Jonathan, do you have other stories of people like? 19th century or you know somewhere about you know who didn't went through the schooling system and who did led great lives and self-educated in a wonderful way <laughs> i guess not off the top of my head uh, the first comes to mind is benjamin franklin and we talked about him uh, i was thinking the same thing in the previous show yeah <laughs> that he began building his fortune when he was 12 years old um yeah you know, and he's the reason we have a, a postal system. Uh, you know, he's the reason for a lot of things. Um, Edison, despite my v- vigorous hatred for, for Thomas Edison, I really do like, I don't want to go off on that. Uh, he, uh, 
he begged, he begged his mother not to send him to school um, <laughs> because you know he could but he could be he could be much more effective on his own in self teaching. Um, mm. Daniel Daniel Farragut uh, during the uh, 1700s he was an admiral, naval admiral at the age of 12. Hmm. Um, wow. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of cases like that. Um, there was a, a a woman who and I can't remember the name, but there's a volume of world history that was co-written uh, by a a married couple, and the man was older. Now this is a point of contention, and you could argue one way or the other, but you could also say it was the time. The man was a bit older. I think he was in his like late twenties, and the the woman was like fourteen. And they were married at this time. And uh, later she said, and this was not even that long ago. I want to say this is even like in the 50s or 60s. But she was uh, had consented to the marriage, was in love with this man. Um, I'm not here to argue that point. I'm only telling the story. They together <laughs> wrote this. They wrote a definitive uh, set of books on world history that it very, is, is extremely in-depth about... Um, this kind of thing, like the origins of philosophy and how it shapes society. And she trained herself in critical thinking and in the um, protocols of uh, historical recording of data when she was like 13, 12, 13 years old. Hmm. I you know, just so, remember it. I just remembered this story that Taylor Gatto was explaining. I think it was in the video. And he was saying how a flight attendant uh, in the 50s or 60s or maybe before, she was very wary that her kid will turn very dependent. So she, like, um, on the United States somewhere, this kid was four years old. And she asked him, if I leave you here, would you be able to go back home? And home was like, you know, eight hours away by <laughs> by airplane. <laughs> you know? yeah, and the kid, was, the kid was, I think so. And the mother, she just <laughs> left him right there. She went away. Oh and the kid, the kid made it home after 11 hours, but he found his way home. He's, that was that was wow. Richard, that was that was Richard Branson, he, the owner of Virgin Airlines. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, one of the one of the wealthiest one of the wealthiest men on the planet. You know, he was he dropped him off eight miles from home and said, "Find your way home." <laughs> wow. At four years old. Now, now yeah. she would be turned to CPS yeah. and have her child yeah. away from her. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Child protective services. That, t- that is. You know, <laughs> that that taught him uh, self reliance, and now he's an incredibly successful business person and uh, innovator. Frankly, you know, like whatever you might think about him, he's done quite a few things with it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this this kind of thing that we're talking about, these, you know, extraordinary examples of, of humanity are possible from all walks of society. And that's the kicker. That's like the depressing and inspiring part that I was talking yeah. about. Um, and, you know, and it's like uh, uh, another thing Gatto talks about is this uh, address that uh, Abraham Lincoln gave an address to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society. 
uh, and it was, it, it, Gatto calls it the mud sill theory, mud sill as in like window sill. And he said that there is, uh, <clears throat> the potential for world leaders to arise from homes with mud sills. That's a, I'm not quoting, it's paraphrasing. Um, but you know, like people can come from all walks of life to do great things. Uh, and even, uh, it was Adam Smith who wrote The Wealth of Nations. In that book, he said there's no difference between the Duke's son and the, and the, the cobbler's son. You know, mm. except, except for early training. That is the only difference. Uh, and there's a funny, well, funny and sad story that Gatto tells about the Wealth of Nations when it was republished. A, uh, a, a, a preface was written to the book saying that, that actually lambasting the author of the book and saying that this ideology would destroy civilization <laughs> as we, as we know it, because we need that class system in order to keep things going. Um, so it's an incredibly contentious idea at high levels of quote unquote management, you know, where, uh, one class, one group of people thinks that we need the upper and the lower classes. The upper classes are truly educated and they manage everybody else. Everybody else is brainwashed and kept in their place to keep the cogs of society moving. Um, and then this, this other idea that, we need to cultivate everyone equally and give early training all over the place because precisely because our society would be so much better if we would actually do that. Hmm. I mean, it would be, probably wouldn't be a utopia. I'm not trying to say that, but it would be miles above where it's at now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you guys don't mind, let's do that last, uh, clip uh, from Gatto. This is talking about uh, testing and uh, what he calls the religion of leverage, um, as well as the, the very last part, he talks a little bit about uh, autonomy for, uh, for individuals. How are populations kind of prepared and indoctrinated and conditioned into receiving, you know, such such uh, low, there's, they they provide such low resistance to the Ponzi scheme mentality yeah, of yeah, the predators. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the the interesting thing about leverage, and it has been studied since ancient Rome, is you don't have to do everybody. You just have to do a few opinion makers. They do the rest. How did Carnegie and Rockefeller get a hold of the schools? There were no pensions for teachers. The government didn't set up the pension system. Rockefeller and Carnegie set up the pension system out of their own pockets. And, of course, they didn't give it to everybody. Your school had to conform with what they said was a balanced educational diet, four credits of whatever they were, two credits of math, whatever they were, you could compete for the pensions if you followed the Carnegie credit system. Is there any school in the country who didn't? I never heard of one. How could you? Because the local parents would say, what are you, nuts? You're not taking this free money? I mean, what you're doing isn't so great anyway. Why don't you do it his way? So this whole uh, religion of leverage, which has just accumulated over more than 2,000 years, is 
utterly unknown except to seminar courses at the most elite colleges. The sense of powers behind the scenes, very, very strong. Let me give you uh, a few specifics. It's been clear since the beginning of standardized testing that the tests do not predict. And the best American, the most prestigious American universities have either dismissed it or kept it in pro forma place. But actually, as Harvard and uh, Princeton told me, it's not a significant determinant. They just don't want to rock the boat, that hold, the glue that holds this pyramid together. They don't predict, then why is 10% of the school year and school budget devoted to exerting stress on so many millions of people and through the children, their families, and why do so many innocently ignorant school teachers say this will determine your future when it only does if you convince yourself that it determines your future? It has no predictive power at all other than to signal this is someone who will memorize whatever you ask him to memorize. A phrase, a label that's vanished from use, there was constant talk of something called the active literacy. As long as you read well, you can develop uh, original thinking, but you can't communicate it. But to be able to master Spoken speech, you can talk to anybody and they can actually understand what you're saying. Or written speech were known as the active literacies. The British government made those a crime, a prisonable offense to teach ordinary people the active literacies, not reading because you want your flunkies to be able to read so they can follow your orders. You can go and play golf or go fishing. But to actually communicate dissident thinking and writing, you can reach way beyond uh, yourself. So the active literacies are, you find in the handful of elite private boarding schools. If you were, for example to extend the privileges of partial autonomy among school kids, you would shrink the establishment. And that is no way to retain power or income. If you were to find substitutions for the purchased supposed uh, improvements in curriculum, I mean, the truth is, superb education doesn't cost a penny to deliver. If you understand what it is, what you're aiming for, and what you can use, it's a lot easier if you have, if you have money. But what money's usually used for is to purchase layer after layer of interventions, and those interventions prevent 
the educational result. So, yep, standardized testing is not a predictive uh, tool for intelligence. It's a uh, it's a, a means of reinforcing uh, the the tactic of memorizing bits of information without connecting them. Mm-hmm. You know, and as yeah. you said, this is the the what he calls the religion of leverage being known in the elite private boarding schools. Um, the upper classes are trained in, in how to control the, the lower classes. They become the policy mm-hmm. makers, uh, and that's how it works. I'd like to see yeah. a curriculum for one of those elite private boarding schools. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Yeah. Maybe I could start studying, get my mm. brain back. <laughs> well, I remember in the school that I was in, it was not a elite private boarding school. It was a small Christian school, but we, I remember, uh, distinctly having a, uh, a very, uh, um, strict, uh, teacher named Mrs. Brum. And she was, uh, <laughs> she was not, she was of German descent, but she was not actually, you know, German, uh, herself. She was an American citizen, but she was pretty strict, but we did, uh, vocabulary lessons, uh, every day. Uh, and we had a separate book, Aside from English class, we had an entire class dedicated to vocabulary and how to uh, learn and, and utilize the, the new words that were coming up. And I don't know if they do that now or if they do that in public schools, but um, especially on the Internet, uh, being a pretty avid uh, you know, browser of the web, um, I see this really dramatic, I would say almost exponential downturn in the ability to, to speak and write the English language properly. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I, I think that hurts people's ability to communicate. You know, it's it's destroying what Gatto calls the active literacies, the ability to to actually develop ideas. So many people may be able to develop those ideas internally, um, but don't know how to communicate them, and that's where the bottleneck happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of talking I, yeah. and jibber jabber, but no real communication going on. And then, right. you know, like in schools, they have the No Child Left Behind and the Common Core, where they just keep pressing and pressing to teach the kids in order to take just a test. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And really even in incentive programs. So with the No Child Left Behind uh, schools that pass, essentially, <laughs> you know, they get the money from the federal government. But if they're not passing, then they lose money. They have to be restructured. Yeah. Yeah. According to the program yeah. by design. Yeah. And even well, so and much now right where they Yeah, go on, Doug. Well, I was just gonna say that, that you can see how that just ends up getting perpetuated. Like, you know, the the schools are under pressure to have their students perform, so then the teachers get that pressure and you know, then you know, obviously there's no um, incentive for a teacher to do anything outside of that program because the the entire, you know, their job basically depends on them be, being able to produce students who can do well on a test. So the idea of teaching anything outside of that is just completely foreign. You know, why would you? So it basically just becomes this, you know, it, it all trickles down um, and it's all about money. Well, and Obama right. instituted this idea of merit pay. So if... Uh, 
teachers are doing, their students are testing well, the teachers are given financial incentive, but what they don't include in this whole idea is demographics. You know, where your schools mm. are at, what type of community it's in. Weren't there some scandals where some teachers were caught giving the students the answers answered. on the test? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this point, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I need my bonus. And a lot of the testing organizations are for profit. So they get government money to come in and teach the teachers how to teach to test. And the school is giving government money to private organizations. So you have schools that are struggling financially, but they have $380,000 to spend on a testing company to come in and teach the teachers how to test. Mm. So it's that whole yeah. idea that the the privatization of, of education, and I think we've talked about this in the past, you know, where McDonald's will be your sponsor. <laughs> They'll write all the mm. curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it, it works. It already works that way here in Spain. For example, like a... Like driving school, you know, you to pass a driving test, it is so difficult that are that are all these private driving schools who teach people how to drive, you know, and they earn lots of money. And there's pretty much the same example in every single area where there is an important test that people need to pass in order to get a job or something. There's the private, you know, corporations offering their courses. So you will pass the test. You just have to pay this. And in the and, U.S., uh, driving school used to be part of the high school curriculum. You went to a six-month yeah. driving class. You drove with other students. It was free. <laughs> and then as they cut back on the budgets, they cut those programs. They cut the home act. They cut music. They cut art. But again, driving school, it doesn't take you six months to learn how to drive. I like Benjamin Franklin. I was driving when I was 12. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a, that's a big example of Gatto says. Like, if we need to drive, everybody does it. You know, yeah. at the age that it's needed. You don't know, you don't need to go yeah. to school to learn how to drive. After twenty lessons, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, the, it's like the saying that common sense is not a flower that grows in everyone's garden. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there anything well, that we can do? Besides what we're doing, <laughs> unschool it's, yourself. It's, it's unschool hard, yourself. It's hard stuff. Yeah. <laughs> unschool I mean, yourself. It, it's from my my very limited knowledge of the uh, of the subject. I think it's very hard to uh, public or to homeschool your children. I mean, first around you have to work around the the need to work and be employed. But it, uh, isn't there also like uh, licensing and certain things that you have to do in order to do that? Um, well, I, mean, I, I, I I have experience in that. I did do homeschooling okay. for 10 years and I worked with a lot of families who were in just that predicament you were talking about, not being able to afford to not send their children to school. And my suggestion is always this is when your children aren't in school and they're at home with you, you teach them what goes on in the family back to, you know, basic things, how to clean, how to cook, how to organize your household. There's opportunities for learning in everything. Children want to learn. They're, they're naturally born creative and are thriving on that. And it's 
really a parent's job to make that an enjoyable experience instead of here's your chores, this is what you got to do. You have to model that behavior. Mm. And um, reading was a big thing that a lot of children get left behind because it's hard to learn how to read. It's almost like potty training. It doesn't happen like one day you read and the next day you don't or one day you don't read and the next day you do, it's more modeling that behavior. And uh, God, I was talking in one of these videos about how just having books in your home is going to model that behavior more than sitting down with your child every night, forcing the reading. If you just have books available where they can pick out something, anything, comic books, newspapers, magazines, anything that sparks their interest, and you go from there. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the homeschooling can be in addition to the to the uh, <clears throat> the compulsory schooling because people, sure. especially in this economy, don't have that. But when the child comes home, you know, it's so much parents struggle with just getting the homework done with their children. Oh, I mean, two three hours a night of homework on average in, in American schooling system. And so many parents I worked with were so stressed out and would hire private tutors to come in and do the homework with the children because they couldn't do it. They could not do the homework. They couldn't do the math. (sighs) And that's kind of the common core, these new curriculums that come out uh, designed by the Chicago School of Economics (laughs) to, again, break everything up so it has no meaning. So if your child is struggling with, say, math, You sit down, we went to the grocery store this week, we bought such and such and such, we paid this much tax, this is how many meals we made. All those kinds of things are very easily learned by a child. And they're real life experiences. And that's what the whole unschooling movement is about, is that everything that you do in life is an opportunity to learn something. And people say, well, it can't be that easy. Well, we're so indoctrinated to think that a teacher has to teach us something. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, th- I would think that's a big part of it is just uh, teaching your children that they can learn from anything and they don't, it doesn't have to be imparted to them. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a school called, say, called uh, well, Sud- Sudbury Valley School in Framingham, Massachusetts, and it was founded about 50 years ago. And they don't have any grades. Uh, All the students and the teachers get like one vote on the working of the school, the rules, what the school buys, and hiring and firing staff members. And there's about 200 Hmm. students and 10 staff. And the staff are on a one-year contract, and they have to be reelected each year. And the students can do whatever they want to do as long as they don't violate the school rules. Like if they want to sign up for a course, they can or they can't. They can spend all day long, you know, playing a musical instrument or sewing and talking with a bunch of other kids of all different ages, not just their own age. And the kids, when they want to learn how to read because they want to participate in some game that requires reading, they learn how to read. Yeah, that sounds like a viable model. I mean, I was going to say, in addition to uh, what what Erica said about, you know, supplementing school by teaching your kids, um, I don't want to presume because I'm I'm not a parent and I understand that 
not being a parent, I, I don't fully understand what it's like to have children. Um, intellectually, I, I kind of understand, but uh, not fully, of course. Um, but I would think another part of it would be uh, teaching uh, communication and teaching basic, like, uh, you know, empathy combined with uh, rhetoric and how to communicate with other people and be on their level and not think of yourself as uh, above or below them for any means, you know. And according to Gatto, that's one of the fields that are more, you know, affected in the schooling system. Like, people don't learn how to communicate. They don't learn how to influence, you know, opinion or... Basically, they're just taught to be very good ship. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like we could go on and on about this, and I, I would have uh, really loved to have shared more audio from Gatto's uh, ultimate history lesson. But of course, uh, that would be very hard to do. I really encourage everybody to check that out. Um, it's on it's on youtube it's in five parts uh you know you can pick and choose and go through it at your own pace so you can take a long time to go through it or you can like you know just binge listen to the whole thing in one night um i i find it really captivating uh so i would encourage people to check that out there's also uh i haven't brought this up yet but uh, there is another podcast that is quite interesting that I have a lot of fun listening to called the school sucks podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, if you just Google school sucks podcast, you'll, you'll find it. Uh, they, they're very, uh, intelligent, uh, couple of people who do a regular podcast on exactly this issue and on, uh, issues of schooling and how to, uh, properly educate, uh, children and families. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah. And for those who prefer to read something, I will encourage people then to read uh, John Taylor Gatto's books, The Underground History of American Education, Weapons of Mass Instruction, and there is one more. Dumbing us down. Dumbing us down. (laughs) 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 There's also another one. I don't have the name of the author right here, but it's uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me. And it's, uh, it's basically a, a research of 14 U.S. history textbooks and what's taught. And uh, the man goes through and basically debunks everything and then gives you the true history of what happened, kind of like Howard's in oh. the People's History of the United States. So that's called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Okay. Cool. Interesting. Cool. And well, I would say, be, too, uh, I guess. Is starting oh, ahead, a thing me. where when we publish a show on SOT, we'll put in some relevant links that people can look up. We'll put those mm. in the in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, too, I think um, part of, you know, what we can do is to just disseminate um, this information. You know, look, look it up yourself, uh, study it to the extent that you can, become familiar with it, and... Next time you get into a policy argument with somebody and they say, we need public schools, say, well, have you heard of Johann Fichte and Francis Galton? You know, let me tell you what the story is. <laughs> yeah, 
follow your curiosity and your interests. I mean, a lot of that was beaten out of us when we were in school. Like, oh, you can't do that. It's not practical. You can't get a job doing that or you won't make enough money. You'll be a bum if you decide to do X, Y, Z vocation. But just do whatever it is that you always wanted to do. Like, even if you just wanted to learn how to weave baskets or something, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. All right. Well, should we let's uh, let's hear from Zoya for this week. The pet health segment is uh, natural sedatives for traveling pets. Uh, uh, it sounds like something that would be uh, applicable to some of our listeners who, mm-hmm. who may happen to travel with their pets. So let's check this out, and we will uh, we'll come back after this to wrap up. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. We all know how hard it may be sometimes to travel with a pet in a car or an airplane, and how stressful it may be for the animal. Of course, some pets love traveling, but some see this experience as very traumatic. Well, as it happens, there are natural solutions for such cases. So in this segment, I'm going to share with you a recording where Dr. Jones, a holistic veterinarian, is going to share with you three of the most effective and safe holistic options to use as sedatives for flying or traveling with your dog or cat. Dr. Jones also shares with you what sedative to avoid. So here it is. This is Dr. Andrew Jones. In this edition of Energy Secrets, I'm going to discuss natural sedatives to calm your dog for traveling or flying. Hi, you guys. Welcome again back to my channel. Um, For those of you who are new, welcome. Uh, For your returning subscribers, thanks for being here. Uh, Today's video was in part inspired uh, by a former client who had some questions around, you know, what could she give her dog for traveling? She's actually flying somewhere. Her question was, are there something else potentially natural that I could consider? And, And yes, there are. And in part of today's video is also inspired by my dog, Lewis, as he's gotten older, he's got increasing amounts of anxiety. So even just getting him into the car, and I'm just going to show you that shortly, I mean, it promotes all this shaking. He's got anxiety about even traveling. He, he's a homebody. Then I'm going to show you three specific remedies that you could be considering to help naturally uh, deal with your dog's anxiety. So it's a very common problem. Um, first of all, just having our pets fly. Increasing numbers of us are flying places, and we're taking our pets. And or, you know, just going on these extended car trips. And you'd be surprised at how many, first of all, how many dogs, you know, get really nervous about that. Anyways, obviously our cats. First of all, the issue with flying, the the question is, should I be giving my dog or my cat anything as far as sedating or calming? It's very stressful, as you can imagine. I mean, throwing into a kennel, all that loud noise, being separated from you for a long period of time. So yes, I do encourage you to be giving your dog something in terms of some form of sedative to make that trip much more pleasant, make it more safe for them. Um, the big issue, though, and I had to start it with a big caveat, is that there is an old veterinary sedative uh, called acepromazine. It's one we used to use in the past. Some of the issues, uh, some of those specific sedatives, is that they can also alter and affect your, your dog or your pet's ability uh, to regulate their body temperature, um, may alter their blood pressure. So anytime you're, you're dealing with your pet who's flying at big heights, for instance, you know, we're up or 30,000 feet in the air, obviously the cabin temperature where they, if they're going to be flying underneath the plane, 
Um, they're not going to have the same you know, temperature regulations going on. Often it's cooler. And the last thing you want, want to be is see your dog or your cat in a state of hypothermia. They're getting especially cold because of the sedative you've given them because you're worried about them barking. So, so that being said, I would avoid any of the drugs that are going to alter your dog or cat's blood pressure, alter their temperature regulation. See how calm he is down here? Oh. Very relaxed. Just hanging out in the yard. But now I'm just going to show you me just getting him into the car. He's just a big, nervous wreck. Good boy. Come on, Lewis. As an aside, you guys, as we make our way to the stairs, I have to show you this giant pile of wood that I just chopped. Really proud of myself. Whoa. Now, is that not a lot of wood? So here's Lewis in the car. As you can see. But boy, he's not really happy. You can tell. Head down. Legs are shaking a little bit already. Breathing a bit heavier. We haven't gone anywhere yet. He's much happier when he hits the top of the car. You can see. Come on, Lewis. Let's go. He can't hear me. Lewis, come on. Come here. Let's go. All right. Good boy. Good boy. Good boy. So now I'm going to show you the three remedies that I was discussing. So the first one, it's L-theanine. You've heard me talk about it in the past. I have a sample of it here. This is one marketed for people uh, to promote mental calmness. There's a number of studies, in particular in people, showing that it does decrease anxiety. Um, and a number of dog owners report some really good success um, using this amino acid. So it's a naturally occurring amino acid found in green tea. So it's one that is very safe, safe for both dogs and for cats. When we're looking at L-theanine dose, um, it's approximately um, one milligram per pound, um, and that can be given, you know, generally given twice daily. Very safe if you give more than that because it is an amino acid. Um, so in terms of something like your dog traveling, say in a flight, you want to be giving it at least an hour prior to be flying. Um, likewise with, you know, driving or in, in a vehicle. Likewise, too, you need to be given about a good hour in advance before it to have an effect. Um, and it's safe to give with food. Um, so something like Lewis, I just pop it into his um, food beforehand, about an hour before I'm going on any type of big trip. really makes a big difference with him. What I find is if I don't give him the L-theanine, I mean, he's up shaking the whole time. He refuses to sit down. I'm really uncomfortable. I give him the L-theanine. It just takes enough to take the edge off. He'll actually calm down, lie down, and I can have a sleep while we're traveling in the car. There's another herb I have here. It's a herbal tincture called valerian. Um, it's a great one for just short-term trips. Um, it works a lot quicker because it's a tincture. It's in the concentrated form. Um, it's a herb that we use. I've talked about for anxiety. I've talked about as a natural muscle relaxant. Um, the way it works in terms of having an effect is it is got this is a tincture with an alcohol base, so it's a little bit bitter. Um, you're really difficult to give it to your cats. If you're going to use valerian cats, you want to be getting the glycerin base. Um, as far as the tincture dose, um, I'm looking at about 
a half a mil for 40 pounds to 30 or 40 pounds, about one mil, which is about up to here on the vial, about one mil for 50 pounds of body weight. And generally, they can be given as frequently as every four hours, but generally it's meant for just a short-term thing. It's not something you're giving long-term. Um, you're going for a short trip. You need something to work pretty quick to sedate and calm your dog. And valerian would be your option. The last natural remedy I want to discuss is one that I have here. Uh, it actually contains two specific ingredients. One is the sleep hormone called melatonin, which you probably all have heard of. Um, so melatonin is what's naturally produced in us and our dogs. You know, in the evening as our body is getting ready to sleep to help just, you know, lower that brain activity and get your body or your brain into a state of rest. Um, so you're rejuvenated, recharged, you can do all those healing things that need to happen during sleep. Um, as far as melatonin, we also use it in our dogs and our cats and for different things. But in particular, it's something that's going to you know, decrease anxiety, such as flying uh, or you know, driving in the vehicle. Typically, we're looking at a melatonin dose, about uh, 2 milligrams per 20 pounds of body weight. And I'm looking at a maximum of 6 milligrams of melatonin, get it every 12 to 24 hours. Um, this product is called Sleep Plus, and it also actually comes in combination with a herb called Passion Flower. So it's one minute, the dose of passion flower here is 240 milligrams. And so similarly, we're looking at a passion flower dose of about one milligram per pound of body weight. So something like, you know, your dog, for instance, you know, such as Lewis, he needs about 75 milligrams. So you get about half of this tablet, which would give him about two milligrams of melatonin, about 120 milligrams of passion flower. Those are two great ones to consider to use in combination. There's a very common over-the-counter medication that many of us use for motion sickness as it could safely use in our dogs and cats. It's called Gravel. The actual name of the drug is Dramamine. So you're looking at a Dramamine dose of 12.5 milligrams per cat. Um, and generally it's given every eight hours, six to eight hours. Um, so something like our dog Lewis, we're looking at about a one milligram per pound. So Lewis being about 80 pounds, you need about 80 milligrams. If you've got a 40 pound dog, 40 to 50 milligrams. Generally, they come in 50 milligram tablets. Um, so something like my last dog, Jesse, he's about 50 pounds. He would be getting one tablet. And it, he had a bit of motion sickness. He drooled traveling in the car. That really helped. It also has somewhat of a sedating effect, so it may actually um, help our pets that are traveling or flying as well. Thank you guys for watching this edition of Energy Secrets. If you've yet to do so, I encourage you to subscribe by clicking that link in the box above. Then you can go ahead, click that link in the box below. I can send you my free books and videos on how to heal your pets at home with my top natural remedies. All right, thank you, Zoya. <clears throat> that was good. I, uh, I've never done a lot of traveling with pets, but it sounds like that, uh, that would be good to give them something natural to calm them down. Hmm. That sounds um, like some well-sedated goats. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they were not panicking. <laughs> well, um, I don't have a uh, food recipe for today. However, we did have uh, from uh, that Gabby shared with us from the Underground History of American Education, the recipe for empty children. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that sound? Uh, and in the uh, <clears throat> in the book, it's funny. It says uh, 
Here's my recipe for empty children. If you want to cook whole children, as I suspect we all do, just contradict the stages of the formula. <laughs> so, so these these are the negative uh, steps. And if you want to uh, if you want to make a well-rounded child, just contradict all of these stages. So, remove children from the business of the world until time has passed for them to learn how to self-teach. Age grade them so that past and future both are muted and become irrelevant. Take all religion out of their lives except the hidden civil religion of appetite and positive negative reinforcement schedules. Remove all significant functions from home and family life except its role as dormitory and casual companionship. <clears throat> Make parents unpaid agents of the state. Recruit them into partnerships to monitor the conformity of children to an official agenda. Keep children under surveillance every minute from dawn until dusk. No private space or time. Fill time with collective activities. Record behavior quantitatively. Addict the young <laughs> to machinery and electronic displays. Teach that these are desirable to recreation, both uh, for learning and recreation. Uh, use designed games and commercial entertainment to teach pre-planned habits, attitudes, and language usage. Pair the selling of merchandise with attractive females in their prime childbearing years so that the valences of lovemaking and mothering can be transferred intact to the goods vended. Remove as much private ritual as possible from young lives, such as the rituals of food preparation and family dining. Keep both parents employed with the business of strangers. Uh, discourage independent livelihoods with low startup costs. Make labor for others and outside obligations the first priority. Self-development second. Uh, grade, evaluate, and assess children constantly and publicly. Begin early. Make sure everyone knows his or her rank. Honor the highly graded. Keep grading and real-world accomplishment as strictly separate as possible so that a false meritocracy dependent on the support of authority to continue is created. Push the most independent kids to the margin. Do not tolerate any real argument. Forbid the efficient transmission of useful knowledge, such as how to build a house, repair a car, or make a dress. Uh, reward dependency in many forms. Call it teamwork. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Establish visually degraded group environments called schools and arrange mass movements through these environments at regular intervals. Encourage a level of fluctuating noise, aperiodic negative reinforcement, so that concentration habits of civil discourse and intellectual investigation are gradually extinguished from the behavioral repertoire. <sighs> and that is it. Great <laughs> recipe. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So just contradict I think my parents all of that. that <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, just contradict all that. Do the exact opposite. <laughs> Easier said than done, of course, but there are ways. Uh, so, <clears throat> we uh, really encourage everybody to look into the sources that we talked about today, and uh, thank you for listening and for our chat uh, participants for for taking part in the chat. Um, make sure to listen to the SOT radio show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Uh, visit radio.sot.net, uh, SOTT.net, to see the uh, the show's airtime in your local time zone. Um, so on Sunday, just go to radio.sot.net, um, and we will be back next week with another topic. Okay. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, right. everyone. Bye. Bye, everybody. Take care.